everybody. God bless you. You know, Brother Chuck had surgery, and he, and he did pretty good. He had a, it was a rotator cuff problem. As it turns out, um, it was really a bone spur cutting into his rotator cuff, causing some very significant pain. But the good news is this, the recovery, now that it actually wasn't rotator cuff, is much shorter. So um, what, what do you say, Brother? <laughs> it must be. Who knows what it is? He told Brother John it's from opening the pages of his Bible. <laughs> That's what he told him. So he had, he's had some painful days, but yesterday was better. And he's uh, in his, um, not rocking chair, I was going to say rocking chair, lazy boy. That's it. Because you can't lie on it in, in, in bed. And, and he has painkillers. So I spoke to him yesterday and Man, it was the most enjoyable conversation. It was just, it was just like a more likable Chuck. You know what I mean? And, you know, for instance, I said, Chuck, I just want you to know I love you. I love you too. <laughs> Do you need a hug? I think so. I mean, it was just different. Nah, I exaggerated a little bit. <laughs> But the point is, he's loopy, and uh, I like the loopy Chuck, you know what I'm saying? Although he's scheduled to teach next week, and who knows what it's going to be. It's going to be like something out there in space. S who knows what, but... Yeah, exactly. Well, we're in First Thessalonians uh, today, and we'll take a look at a few words in this marvelous text. You know... Uh, uh, when we think of 1 Thessalonians, we call it a Bible book, which is surely acceptable, but it's actually a letter. Do you know another word for letter uh, in, yeah, epistle. If you ever hear that word epistle, don't get nervous. It means letter. That's all it means. So this is a letter, and ancient letters, letters written in the Greco-Roman world, that's the world of the New Testament had a, a format like our letters today. For instance, you write a letter today, you say, dear so-and-so, and then there's the body of your letter, and then you sign off at the end. Not quite like that in ancient Greek letters. There would be three elements in the salutation. One, who wrote it. Two, who are the recipients of the letter. And three, a greeting. And you'll see that this, since this is a letter written in a Greek context, you'll see all three elements. So take a look. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. How does your Bible start it? Yeah, good. Look at this. What great agreement already. We all agree that's how it starts, Paul. So we, got, we have the answer to the first element, who wrote it. We, we just found out it's, it's Paul. Do you know in some of us, in most of his other letters, he adds something to his name. He adds a title or a description of himself, but it's noticeably absent here. Do you have any ideas why? Why does he just say Paul? I mean, in other letters, he says Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes he says Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus. He, here he just says Paul. More personal, Doc. You're so right. He, he, this already betrays a relationship with the recipients um, of a kind and um, quality that maybe he didn't have with others. In fact, you'll see um, they knew him. And accepted his credentials because he started their church. We'll see that in just a second. So in some of the other letters, he has to defend himself. 
you know, they questioned it. Who do you think you are telling us what to do? And so he had to say, I'm an apostle. I didn't select, I didn't put myself in the position God did. Okay, so it starts out that way, Paul. And then it says, and Silvanus and Timothy. You have that in your Bible? Good, look at this. We're on a roll here. So if Paul is the writer, why does he put himself in partnership with these other two men? Any idea? What do you say? Um, oh, elder. Then you're absolutely, there was that relationship, kind of a mentoring sort of relationship. Is that what you're, what you're sort of getting at? Or? It was an excellent shot. Absolutely. Uh, there's something. Yes, Rex. Okay, so now what Rex said is so much better than what Danny said. <laughs> you know, seriously, I think we should just be clear about that. Yes, even though, uh, you know, Paul is the big guy. He's the head of the show. He's in cahoots with uh, Sylvanus and, uh, and Timothy. They were his co-laborers, especially on behalf of the Thessalonians. And putting them in uh, partnership with him gives them credibility. It's possible there would be times uh, he, they would visit Thessalonica apart from him. And he wanted to make sure they were received and respected just as the Thessalonians would Paul. So that's one of the reasons. Yeah, Doc, did you have some? Yes, sir. You're exactly right. Uh, and the question is, is it also because the three of them were part of a missionary journey to start the church? And the answer is yes. It was the second missionary journey of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were involved. Absolutely. Okay, so we got that. We know who, who wrote this. We don't know much about Silvanus except it's a form of the name Silas. Silas is an abbreviated form of Silvanus. So when you read in Acts, for instance, about how things got started, namely this church, you'll see, um, you'll see, it, uh, you'll see Silas involved. That's, that's Silvanus. We know he was one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And then we also now read about Timothy. We know a whole lot more about Timothy. He was a follower of the Lord. He was from a place called Lystra or Lystra in modern-day Turkey. He was the product of a Jewish believing mother and a Gentile, probably non-believing father. So my, they must have had interesting discussions around the family table. He was led to the Lord by Paul, who referred to him as my child in the faith. In six of Paul's epistles, if I say Pauline epistles, you won't, you won't get irritated by that. I mean, that, see, so Pauline, when you see... The reason I bring this up is you see these terms from time to time. Pauline means attributable to Paul. Pauline. If I say Johannine or Johannine, that's attributable to John. And again, you, you, you already determined epistle is another word for a letter. In six of the Pauline epistles, uh, Timothy is referred to as Paul as my faithful co-laborer. In fact, two New Testament letters are sent to Timothy. Anyone happen to know what their names are? Yeah, baby, no trick questions here. First and second Timothy. Look at that. He's right there. So this is an important kind of a guy. So we know who authored it. Now we know the second element in ancient Greek salutations, and that is the recipients. There it is, to the church. Do you have that in your Bible, something like that? To the church. Uh, anyone know what the underlying Greek word is for the English word church? 
Ecclesia, ecclesia. So listen to this. It's a compound word, which means two words making up one. Ek and then kaleo. Ek, out of, kaleo, to call. I only do this not, uh, not to impress you, although aren't you really impressed? <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. I mean, you don't run into this over at McDonald's, I'm telling you that. Ek kaleo, ecclesia. It means called out ones. Believers, are, we are, that's what the church is. We're an assemblage of called out. Called out from what? The world. A domain of darkness into the, it's, the Bible says, the kingdom of the beloved son. Totally new citizenship and identity. So we're called out ones. Now, that term is not religious. It was in common parlance in the day. It was used in secular society. The term ecclesia. In fact, it was used in about a, a political assembly or a civic assembly. Paul co-opted the term and applied it to the church and as an assembly of a different kind, an assembly of Christ followers. And the term has the connotation of community, very important. Ecclesia, the church community of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the notion of community was very essential in the first century for believers because they had lots of competition they were odds with they were at odds with many false religions things called mystery religions and this and that all kinds of gnosticism who knows what and the uh, first century believers knew they had to do the christian life together or they're not going to make it one apart from the body could easily be picked off and one could be subsumed by the surrounding culture. Therefore, they formed the ecclesia, the ones called out of that community into this community, not to isolate from it, but to be built up in the faith so as to be a blessing to that outside community. But so they saw growth and discipleship to be done through the vehicle of church. So it's quite important, more important than today. Let's just face it. Today, this individual this American individualism has gotten the best of us in the church. Today, every individual member of the church has his or her likes and dislikes about everything. And it's an interesting day. Today, we all seem not reluctant to share those opinions <laughs> about everything from music to attire to this to that to everything. They're valid opinions. Uh, it's, it's just a proliferation of them that seem to come out. Now, the sad thing about these valid opinions is in many cases, if an individual Christian doesn't, uh, if an individual Christian's opinions are not catered to, that individual Christian has a very viable option of simply going to another church because we got millions of them. You know, they're like all over the place. So you don't like one, go to the one down the block. That's what people do. So a lot of so-called church growth, it's really not growth at all. It's what we call transfer growth. It's people falling out of sorts. That's not true. There are very good reasons for leaving some churches. It's people relocating for whatever reason, good or bad, from one place to another. And, uh, but that's not actual growth, is it? That's just spreading the... Spreading the wealth, we could say. And, and so, so in that day, um, they valued the, the collective a little more. They didn't think of themselves so much as individuals. They saw themselves called out 
from the world into a community. I mean, God didn't, he saved us personally. I understand that. It's private. But he saved us into a family, into a community. That's why you see so much family vocabulary in the Bible. Our Father who art in heaven. Brothers and sisters, you know, brethren, little children. Those are all family systems terminology. So in the first century, they had more of a notion of that than we do. Why? Well, once again, we've gotten to be rather comfortable American Christians. You know, we've got so many options. They didn't have them in those days. Uh, so uh, what's the head of the church? That's, that's the Lord. What's he going to do about it? Well, he's already doing something about it. I don't know if you noticed. He's allowing worldwide persecution like has not been in our day. And it is going to get worse. I don't, I'm not, it's not a prophecy. I'm just telling you, I've read the scriptures and it's going to get worse. So now there's horrific manifestations of persecution in different places in the world, you know, and all kinds of crazy things, uh, much more extreme than we're experiencing. But my goodness, what we're experiencing is much more extreme uh, than we've ever experienced here. It's uh, quite phenomenal. Um, well, God, where are you? Why, why, why? why don't you do something? And I think the Father says, I am. I'm allowing this to enhance your appreciation for one another because you've lost it. I'm enhancing you. I, I, I'm doing this to enhance your valuation of your community because even though you have your likes and dislikes and differences in your community, you have so much more in common than that community. You have me in common, you see? And you have values in common. For instance, in spite of our differences, it's highly unlikely we're going to compromise on the Bible in our community here. I mean, it's the word of God. We're not looking for a better deal. We're not playing with it. We can, we can look at it differently. I understand that. But we have a high view of Scripture. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's highly unlikely we're going to change. Um, it's highly unlikely that uh, you'll see uh, anyone here officiating at a uh, same-gender marriage ceremony. It's highly unlikely you'll see that. We're, we're, we're probably not going to do that. It's highly unlikely, though we respect the government as an agent of God Almighty himself, it's highly unlikely that if the government required for us to do something that uh, runs contrary to what God wants us to do, it's highly unlikely we're going to obey the government. We will, we will respectfully submit to the government by refusing to obey, but then accepting the consequences. You see what I'm, it's highly unlikely. Yeah, but what if we lose our nonprofit status? So? Yeah, but what if, what if we lose our building? Yeah, you see, the church is not the building, right? Ecclesia called out ones. Folks, we can meet anywhere, for crying out loud. But not in my house, give me a break. <laughs> Come on, I got dogs, you know. We, so, so I think God is going to use what's going on. I didn't say it's good, but I think a great God is going to use it for the good. So uh, anyway, ecclesia. What, what, what ecclesia? Well, it says of the Thessalonians. So it was a local community of believers, the locale being Thessalonica. If you, you can go to modern-day Thessalonica. It's, it's actually called Thessaloniki. And if you look on a map, you might even not find, it might say Salonica, Salonica. It's, um, it's in uh, northern Greece. Um, and uh, the ruins of this city, Thessalonica, are underneath that one. This is an ancient city. It was founded by the Greeks, the Greeks first, in all 300 B.C. 
by a guy named Cassander. If it was founded by a guy named Cassander, why is it called Thessalonica? Because Cassander was a pretty smart dude. He named it after his wife. Because as is typical of most of us guys, he needed the points. So he named the city after her. You know what I'm saying? And not only that, uh, his wife was the sister of someone called Alexander the Great. You don't want to mess with him. So this is like double duty. You know what I'm saying? I'll, he says, I'll get some points with my wife and my, you know, my brother-in-law won't chop off my head. So it was called Thessalonica. But then in around 160, 68 or so BC, the Romans took over. They beat up the Greeks and got rid of the Greeks. So now the Romans took it. It was a territory called Macedonia. The uh, Romans divided it into quarters. They quartered it, and each quarter had a capital city, and uh, Thessalonica was the capital city of its quadrant in ancient Macedonia. So it was a significant place, not only politically, but also commercially, since it was on a Roman trade route. A lot of stuff going on there. In fact, it looks like the population was in excess of 200,000. You say, 200,000, that's not that big. Oh, yeah, in the ancient world it is. So they had 200,000 people there, and it was mixed uh, residents, Jews, Gentiles, all kinds of folks. So that's, that's kind of it. And how did it get to be this, this community of believers at Thessalonica? Well, we don't have to guess. We can read the Acts of the Apostles. We call it Acts, but it's the Acts of the Apostles. It tells us what they done did. And so if you turn to Acts chapter 17, we'll look at a couple verses, and you'll see how this church, the recipient of 1 Thessalonians, how it got started. Acts chapter 17, we'll spend a couple minutes looking at a few verses. Beginning in verse 1 is where we'll be. It says, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. The they, apostles, including Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. They traveled through these two cities, which are about 30 miles apart. They didn't stop off. Why? Well, I'll tell you why I think in just a second. Anyway, they passed through until they got to their destination, Thessalonica, which is about 40 miles west of Apollonia. Why did they stop at Thessalonica? This is just a thought. You see where it says where there was a synagogue of the Jews? This was Paul's evangelism strategy. He went to the Jews first. Why? Well, good night. It's easier to build on a foundation already laid. They had a foundation in the Hebrew Scriptures. If Paul wanted to talk to them about Jesus the Messiah, uh, the whole notion of a Messiah would not be a foreign concept. For instance, he could say to the Jews, our own prophet Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and Paul could say, my fellow Jews, do you have any idea who the him is, whom Isaiah speaks? And Paul could say, it's Jesus, it's Yeshua. It's Yeshua HaMoshiach, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. So, so Paul's intent was never to stop, uh, uh, excuse me, stay at the synagogue as if the gospel isn't for all people. Oh, no, 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 no. But he started there because he thought uh, foundations already laid. And there's another reason why I think he stopped at the synagogues. 
Um, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Period. Right? No. Comma. It's preached as if that's where the verse ends. But the second part of the verse says, it starts out, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. And here's the part that's oft neglected to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, what does that mean? Well, at least if people are discussing it, that makes me happy instead of leaving it out. Uh, to me, it means first, not in terms of priority of value, no, priority of relevance, folks. You're talking about a Jewish gospel uh, typified in Jewish feasts of Israel and uh, brought uh, by the death, burial, and resurrection of a Jewish Messiah. If that message isn't first uh, relevant to Jews, how can it be relevant to anybody else? So if we're skipping over the Jews with the gospel, we're jumping over them, we're almost invalidating the gospel. I'll illustrate. Let's say I live here and there's a neighbor over here. Let's say I have a 10-year-old son. The neighbor has a 10-year-old son. Let's say I want to persuade the neighbor that I love his son in a good, healthy, wholesome manner. I love your son. And the way I do it is to take time off to go to that son's, the neighbor's son's, Little League baseball game. But in the process of doing that, I don't go to my own son's Little League baseball game. How can I persuade these people I love them when I'm not even loving the one for whom my love is most relevant? Can you see what I'm getting at? How can I go about and do world evangelism when in the process of persuading people of God's love for them, I skip over the Jews? You see, and, and why am I bringing this up? Because it's happening. That's why I'm bringing it up. It's happening. Everyone's excited about evangelism of every people group, as we ought to be. What happened to the Jews all of a sudden? Has God forsaken them? You say, hang on just a second, Stuart. I know you're saying this because you're a Jew boy yourself. Uh, no, uh, let me just quote scripture. <clears throat> uh, you might say, Stuart, uh, your people, with all due respect, man, they are just not with the program. They're Christ rejectors. You're right. But then you're coming to the wrong conclusion that because of it, God's through with them. Now look at this. All day long, God's words. I've stretched out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. You're right. My people are disobedient and obstinate. There's no argument. I do not defend them. So what's God's response? All day long, I continue to stretch out my hand to them. What's our response? Because those Jews are disobedient and obstinate, let's move past them. Well, I ask you, my beloved fellow Christians, when, when is God going to move past you? What do you think? You're so hot? You're not. <laughs> so this is very, very important. So, 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 so Paul always, always, always went to the synagogue first. So verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went, we're still in Acts 17, by the way. He went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. When it says the scriptures, it means... The Hebrew scriptures, it means the Old Testament. That's all they had. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, that means Messiah, or anointed one, had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And here's what happened. Some of them were persuaded. Isn't that always the way it is? We want everyone, but it's not that way. Some of them, whatever the people group, some are going to be persuaded. 
Some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Ah, so that's Silvanus. See right there? Silas is Silvanus. And this is along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks. You know who that is? You guys. That's who that is. Gentiles, members of non-Jewish nations. So here you have the gospel being relevant to Jews and Gentiles. That's the idea. Not only that. And it says, and a number of leading women. Why in the world is that in there? In this day, women would not even be privy to this decision-making. You know, women didn't have rights to choose their religious perspective, so to speak. You know what we're seeing here? The gospel levels the playing field in, 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 with regard to our approach to Almighty God. There is no Jew nor Gentile, no uh, slave nor free, no male nor female. Well, of course there is. There are men and women here. There are Jews and Gentiles here and all the rest, and many people are enslaved in the world today while some are free. It doesn't mean those distinctions are removed. It just means every one of those diverse people groups comes to the cross the same way, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. You see, it's the same thing. So that's what it says. And then it says, verse 5, but the Jews, oh, man, here's the part I don't like. <laughs> but there it is. got to read the whole Bible. But the Jews... That's primarily the Jewish religious leadership. The Jews being jealous, yep, base human emotion, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. They got some homeboys to stir up the trouble. That's what's happening right here. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. They, it was Thessalonica. They set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, house of Jason? Who in the world is Jason? You tell me. I don't know. This is one of the unsung heroes of the Bible, Jason. What do I, who knows? They, they come upon the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. They were seeking to bring Paul and Silas and the other key leaders out from Jason's house to the mob so that the mob could have their way with them, kill them. Who knows what? But sovereign God saw it coming. So verse 6, when they did not find them, they came to Jason's house, meeting place, but Paul and Silas were not there. When they couldn't find him, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. Here comes the government. City authorities shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. That's what they said. And Jason has welcomed them. So Jason's taking a hit now. You know what Jason did? Jason said, hey, I'm interested. Y'all need a place for your, like, your, your meetings, your, what do you call them, Bible studies? Well, I got a room. You want to hang out? My place, you know what I mean? I got some good food, Jason's Deli. And, uh, <laughs> huh? You knew it would come eventually. So all he's doing is opening up his house for these people, and now he's taking a big hit. So, so they said, Jacob welcomed them. Jason welcomed them, and, they, and look what they do. They all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, Roman leader saying there's another king, Jesus. Is that a fair accusation? Yeah, there is another king, King Jesus. But what's a little distorted here is King Jesus didn't come to threaten any mere political leader. Can I tell you something? King Jesus doesn't really care how you, we work out our politics. That's not the deal. King Jesus has a kingdom of an entirely different kind. It, uh, king Jesus, his kingdom exists in people's hearts. When people subject themselves to his kingship, ah, that's his kingdom. You see what I mean? So he's, he's not 
threatening Caesar, but that's what they say. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. What pledge? Did Jason say, okay, we're sorry. We won't do it again. We pledge this. No, 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 no. It was a monetary thing. You know what it was? It was a payoff. It was the government, just like today. Is the government saying, yeah, yeah, you know, Jason, we can drum up some laws, some statutes, some we can make up some stuff that you violated. Man, we can have you ahead. We're inclined in that direction, Jason, but I'll tell you what would maybe soften us up a little bit. You know what I'm saying? And so Jason coats the palm, and that's what happens. And they let him go. And verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. It's about 50 miles away from Thessalonica. Sent them to Berea. And look at this. When they arrived, these guys don't learn, do they? They went into the synagogue of the Jews. See how they keep doing that? They went right back there. So here's the deal, folks. Paul had to leave Thessalonica, but his concern for those people never left him. And the proof is first and second Thessalonians. That's how he's maintaining contact. He couldn't be with them face to face, so he writes letters to them. And we get to read both of them. Uh, right here before us, thousands of years later. This one, 1 Thessalonians, was probably written by Paul around A.D. 50 or 51. In other words, it was probably one of his earliest letters or epistles. He probably wrote it from Corinth and many purposes. This is one of the primary purposes for the letter writing. The ones to whom he is writing are really taking a hit. They are really being persecuted. Oh, my goodness. They are really suffering. What's Paul going to say to him? Could he say something to him? Chin up. Uh, you know, it's going to work out. It'll, it's going to pass. He, he could say that if he's a liar or if he's speaking beyond his ability. I mean, he doesn't know how long this is going to last. I mean, how, so how, how does he give peace to people who are in the midst of persecution? Instead, he... He raises their sights in spite of the persecution. He knows he can't get them out of it. He knows the situation might not get better. In fact, he knows it's going to get worse. So he raises their sights. You know what he says? You'll see this in First and Second Thessalonians. He says, folks, you're going through hell, but you're not alone. Remember Jesus. Look what he went through. He says, you know, folks, the fact that you're being persecuted in his name is confirmation that you belong to him. He said, you know something, folks? Uh, all these people doing this to you, do you think for one minute your father doesn't see? Do you, do you think for one moment your father isn't going to hold them accountable for what they're doing to you? He says, folks, you know something? You know what you're going through? It could get worse. I, you know, I don't know. But one day, one day for sure, It'll be over. One day, the Lord will return. One day, he'll gather all of us together, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slavery, all this stuff. One day, our wounds will be healed. Our tears will be dried. One day, there'll be no mourning or crying or tears. There'll be no more death. These first things, the reality of this first phase of our existence will have passed away and all things will become you know, that's what he's saying. So what you find in First and Second Thessalonians is some good information on the subject of what we call eschatology. Eschatology. Again, it comes from a Greek word, 
eschaton, the eschaton, the future. Eschatology is the study of the future. So much of the Bible uh, tells us about the future. And we Christians study it as we ought to. It's good. Prophecy, things like that. But then usually what happens when we do our study is we come to different opinions about it. Especially when it comes to the details or the sequence of future events. For instance, I'm a guy who believes the next key future event is something called the rapture. You do not have to agree with that. I'm also a guy who believes that that key event is going to take place before another key event called the Great Tribulation period. But there are really godly, wonderful Christians who, who don't hold to that. It's called the pre-tribulational rapture. They hold to something called the mid-tribulation, saying, oh, there's a rapture, but it takes place in the middle of this seven-year period. Others who say, no, no, it doesn't. It takes place at the end. We're going through the tribulation. Can I tell you something? I don't lose a wink of sleep over that. That's a beautiful in-house discussion, not argument, where well-intentioned Christians can differ. And there, there are others who, who, who differ even, you might say, more extremely. But here's the deal. If you're a Christian, um, do you believe that the Lord is coming again? Look at that. We all got that figured out. If you're a Christian, when he comes again, are you afraid? You, no, of course. You know why you're not afraid? Because you responded right to his first coming. You got nothing to worry about his second coming. You recognize his first coming to be as lamb who suffered and died. You know his second coming will be as lion, but you're not worried about it. Because the wrath do you and me has been poured out upon him at his first coming. Listen. When the Lord Jesus comes, or uh, come, we stand before him, what are the options for people in the future in terms of their eternal situation? How many options? We've got like 10, 12. What are the options? Two. That's it. To be with the Lord or eternally apart from him. Can you see the agreement we have? You understand what I'm saying? So Christians who differ on, uh, with regard to eschatology uh, rather aggressively Real Bible Christians, we're all together on these things. Now, here's Paul's point. Do you know he doesn't spell things out here? He doesn't spell out the details of eschatology or the chronology of it, really, in, in my opinion. He gives us key passages, but why doesn't he spell it out? I'll tell you why. He's not writing, writing professorially. He's writing pastorally. He's talking to the flock from the point of view of a pastor, not a seminary professor. He's not looking for precision on the sequence of events. He's looking to encourage suffering Christians by, by, by telling them the facts, the broad strokes of the eschaton, future events. So that's, that's what we'll see in First and Second Thessalonians. You'll see uh, significant passages on the future, and then we will leave here, and each of us as a well-intentioned Christian is free to kind of work this out his or her way. I would never want to separate from fellowship from one of you who sees things differently than I do in this regard. Unless, oh no, the return of Christ, that's bunk, this, that. You know, if it comes to those fundamental areas of disagreement, we don't have fellowship. If it comes to the sequence of events, okay, you are entitled, as I am, but you are entitled to your wrong opinion. <laughs> so, that's how we do it. So, so, anyway, that's, what, that's what's going on um, 
over here. So it says, Paul and Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now get this, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In God the Father. He's writing to believers who are located in Thessalonica. And now he says, and they are also in God the Father. Two locations. One physical, one spiritual. That's true of every Christian. Every Christian has two locations. One is where you is. You know, you, you, you are here. Your physical environment, this place, this town, this city, this, this body, uh, uh, afflicted oftentimes by disease and ailments and all the rest. That's your, that's your reality, your physical reality. But your spiritual reality is that you're in God the Father and Jesus Christ the Lord. My advice is, for you, for me, that we emphasize our spiritual location rather than our physical one because our physical one is temporary. Just being logical here. Why make an undue investment in that which is passing? That's all. Your status, your marital status, your relationships, you know, all that kind of stuff. You understand that's all temporary? Do you know that? Most of us are living there. We're being consumed by our life situation here when, in fact, our life situation here is going to give way to an ultimate reality. So, so he's writing to folks at, in Thessalonica who are in God the Father. And so so the, the distinguishing factor of this assembly, there were many ecclesias in Thessalonica, political, social, but the distinguishing factor of this group of called out ones is their, um, their group owes its origin to God the Father. This group knew God as Father. They weren't Republicans. They weren't Democrats. They weren't members of the YMCA, Jim, whatever. All these things are assemblies. Cool, very good. This is distinguished in that the origins of this one, the essential identity of this one has to do with them considering God as Father. And not only that, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This Yeshua, this Jesus, they acknowledged as Lord. And this Yeshua, this Jesus, they acknowledged as Christ, as the anointed one. And that separated them out from every other kind of assembly. And then Paul ends with this, grace to you and peace. It's not wishful thinking. No way. It's a theological pronouncement. He is saying, folks, no matter what's going on, no matter what people are trying to take away from you, please remember what God has given to you. Grace and peace. You know what he does? He takes a Greek word. It's the word underlying the word grace. And he couples it with a Hebrew word, the word underlying the word peace, shalom. He puts them together. <laughs> It's brilliant. He's talking to Greeks and Hebrews and all that. And so he takes key words from both of their languages. He puts them together. He says, that's what God has given you. Grace and peace. Grace. God gave you what you don't deserve. <laughs> and as a result, you could have peace. That's how it works. In, no, in, in not one of Paul's epistles is the order of those two blessings ever reversed. You'll never read peace. First, today we're a society bent on peace. Give peace. All we are saying, sing it with me, is give peace. What a dumb song. <laughs> are you kidding me? There's no possibility of peace without first the experience of God's grace. Paul got it right. At a lot of rallies today in protests, you hear this uh, saying um, uh, people have on signs and yell it out, sometimes in unison, no justice, no peace. I don't want to denigrate it, 
every American citizen has a right to issue that cry. They have, every American citizen has a right to demand justice from its government and all of its agencies. So I'm not putting that down. So that may be something you want to cry out to government about, but don't ever cry out to God that way. You don't ever want to come before God and say, God, no justice, no peace. You don't want God to treat you justly. You want him to treat you graciously. What you require from the government is one thing, but don't put God in that box. If God gave you what you justly deserve, if he gave me what I justly deserve, we're dead. We'll never have peace, you see. So we want to cry, oh, God, please don't give me what I deserve. Please withhold it. Please just be gracious to me. So we ought to utter, uh, instead of no justice, no peace, with reference to God, we ought to say no grace, no peace. It's not possible. Don't we realize that now? The world is on a fever quest for stability and tranquility and status quo and peace. And it has so little of it. We go to Israel. We go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city of peace. Are you kidding me? It has such, so little peace. Are you kidding me? Point to me a place and we're good. Take it a map just at random. Point to it. How are we doing with peace over there? Are you kidding me? We're losing. Are you kidding me? No grace, no peace. But when there is uh, the grace of God received freely, um, then we have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we have peace within. And when we have peace within, we have a greater chance of being at peace with one another. See how it works? We reverse the line. We're trying to work it out with one another. We can't work it out with one another. We kill each other. We hate each other. We're disgusted with one another. We value our own kind and hate those who ain't. That's just the way it is. That's every, every part of the world. Are you kidding me? But the order is this way. Be a recipient of God's grace as manifested through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then knowing you're at peace with God, there's reconciliation. You have a measure of peace within you never had before. And when you have a measure of peace within, you operate out of it with regard to one another. I don't need a piece of you to get peace if I have peace on the inside. I don't need to exploit you. I'm not looking to you to help me with my unresolved issues because my issues are resolved. I have peace with God. I have peace within. I'll do better at uh, uh, working out peace with you. See how it works? So this is a very, very important uh, first verse. And uh, that's all we're doing. <laughs> because, uh, hey, I'm done. Because if that's all I prepared. That's all I studied. So <laughs> what can I tell you? Um, but I, I, I'm not too worried about what you think because I'm at peace with God. You know what I'm saying? Um, in theory, Brother Chuck will take us through... Uh, Pick us up at verse 2 next week. The reason I say in theory is because, I don't know if I told you this, he's loopy. I don't know where he's going to take us. We may be in the, like the concordance or something next week. Read through First Thessalonians, would you? You can read it through a dozen times before we get together next. Why? It's just a short book. Al? I shall do it. Uh, sign up to be a counselor. It's Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, 530 in the Worship Center. We'll give you an orientation, hand out materials. Um, if you can't make it then, we'll take you anyway. Uh, we, we can give you a brief orientation, just one-on-one, -on -one, 
introduce you to beautiful children who you'll sit across and you could uh, take them through the gospel and lead them to the Lord. We have a format. If you've never done it before, not to worry. We can help you. And so if you would please uh, sign up. As Alan so wisely said, the sheets will be out there as we take leave of one another. Danny? You know, I, uh, Danny was talking about, uh, we're looking at this phrase, grace and peace, and he was saying, it reminds him, how many songs we sing that have these magnificent blessings as their theme, grace and peace. I was a pastor once of a church, and, uh, and they threw me out. But, but, uh, <laughs> but for, for, and uh, the worship leader, uh, he would say, what kind of songs do you like? I say, I like songs about grace and peace. He says, yeah, but can you send me your sermon notes in advance so I can choose songs that match up to it? To which I said, no. I mean, you're putting pressure on me. You know, I, I, mean, I can't have it more in advance than I have it. Well, well, you mean you're going to wait to form your, 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 select your songs until you hear from me? But I said, we don't have to do that. We always want to sing about grace and peace. Just make those the themes of the songs, and I shall be a happy camper. And it's none of your business what I preach about. Just, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so you can see the reason for that. And the music guy, he, uh, he's selling insurance now or something. Uh, yes, Doc? I think it's good that you opened up the first Thessalonians this last week That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The epistles are the wives of the apostles. Lord Jesus, we couldn't laugh but for your grace because we wouldn't be at peace on the inside. And may we never underestimate what it cost for you to grant us peace, for us to be at peace with you. How could, be a, how could sinful people be at peace with a, an otherwise unapproachably holy God? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the mediator, the bridge builder. Thank you for taking our hand and putting it into your fathers. Oh, my goodness. Now we're at peace because of grace. In the overflow, having been good newsed, we ought to reveal it and share it with others around us. Oh, God, we're grateful for governmental efforts at racial reconciliation and all the rest, but we're doubtful that it will succeed. But you can bring us together, Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, old and young all the rest of the things that separate us. Oh, God, because we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thank you, O oh God, for leveling the playing field. No second-class citizens. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all, by faith, can be recipients of your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've gone through for us, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming again, and thank you for the glorious hopeful and joyous time that awaits us. Until that happens, we pray for ourselves and our brothers and sisters around the world that you would strengthen our tie with one another and with you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, blessings to you folks. See you next time.